0: If there's anything you need to know before this episode, it's that war is peace, freedom is slavery, ignorance is strength, and this is and Lock.
1: I'm Natalie Dauzicki.
0: And I'm Landry Ayers. Joining us to discuss the origins of the Orwellian and 1984 are Director of Health Policy Studies at the Cato Institute, Michael Cannon. How are you doing, Landry? And Director of the Cato Institute's Project on Emerging Technologies, Matthew Feeney. Hi there.
1: All right, so this has to be one of the most famous books ever written, and the movie's fair at best. <laughs> but I'm sure most of our listeners, if not all, at the very least, are vaguely familiar with the story. Um, but just to get us started, can someone explain like the political and social landscape of Oceania, and you know who's in charge, who's running the show?
2: So Oceania is. Basically, Britain and a collection of other countries, I believe, that it's sort of fallen under its sway. They are at war with, well, it depends on uh, <laughs> whom you ask and when you ask, and we'll get to that, I'm sure. Uh, but the governing, uh, uh, the, the political structure in Oceania is uh, the party. The party is uh, Ingsoc, which is uh, short for English Socialism, and the there are uh three distinct classes in Oceania there is the inner party those are the people who really run the show those there's the outer party those are the people who are devoted to the party and sort of like a middle class in, in political and economic terms and then there are the proles whom uh the people in the inner and outer party refer to as animals and it is a highly repressive dystopian society where uh, you have, where the state really is totalitarian. is controlling every aspect of, of 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 life, from economics to familial and even sexual relations to the way people think.
3: Yeah, and the uh, the crucial uh, figure in the whole thing is someone called uh, Winston Smith, who is. A uh, one of the many of the party members who works in the so-called Ministry of Truth. In in the novel, there are um three major uh ministries that oversee uh Estrip 1, or Oceana, but certainly Estrip 1, which I like, suppose is 1984's um uh prediction of what um the island of Great Britain will be called um in this new regime. <laughs> uh, and the I mean the, the, these ministries are um are uh, are called you know the ministry of plenty, the ministry of love, the ministry of peace, and the ministry of truth. And uh, of course, you know the the book has many contradictions uh, discussed in it. Uh, I'm sure we'll talk about doublethink later. But of course, the the ministry of peace is in charge of war. Uh, the ministry of plenty seems to be overseeing a rather impoverished economy. Uh, and the ministry of truth is uh, basically the the propaganda wing of the government, and it's where Uh, The protagonist, uh, Winston Smith, works where he works on um, fixing, shall we say, uh, the old uh, journalism of the world before the revolution.
0: I think this is actually a really good opportunity to get into the topic of doublethink that you raised, Feeney, because it is one of the most influential and uh, long-lasting ideas that has really become part of the vernacular of everyday life. In conjunction with things like Big Brother, um, which have become synonymous with ideas about mass surveillance and particularly state-run surveillance, Um, can you explain the concept of doublethink for someone who might be struggling with with what it might mean or entail and I think why does it have such a, a lasting legacy? Where do we see that in the real world?
3: It's it's a good question, and, and you're right. I think to highlight the influence of the book's vocabulary in modern discussions about surveillance and government repression. Uh, Orwell's own name has become an adjective to describe something as Orwellian. Uh, but there are other words uh, and phrases throughout the throughout the book that that people will pick up on. So for something to be memory hold or Room One Hundred and One, uh, the Thought Police mm-hmm. or Thought Crime. Um, it's it's a real testament, I think, to Orwell's genius that he developed, you know, by himself, a vocabulary that is now just taken for granted in discussions about some of the most serious civil liberty concerns. Uh, and doublethink, I think, is perhaps best um, encapsulated by the slogans of the English Socialist Party of Ingsoc, which I, I have. In a poster uh, in my in my office, right? The the idea being um, that the slogan is you know war is peace, freedom is slavery, and ignorance is strength. Uh, and the, the basic point of doublethink is the ability to hold two contradictory phrases in your mind at the same time is true. And it's been very very uh, important uh, in in the novel uh, because uh, I, as I think you know Orwell understands it, language is. A political weapon, and once you can get people to think contradictory things, your ability to um, control them is is increased uh, I- immensely. And you know there are a couple of times in the book where Orwell talks about um, the sort of people in in this world and how important they are to the party functioning. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a part in early on in the book where he describes one of his neighbors as the sort of person essential for the success of the party because the man is stupid. Um, you know, an imbecile. Uh, and later, when he's talking to one of his colleagues in the Ministry of Truth, working on the dictionary for Newspeak, the vocabulary, uh, he predicts the death of this person, um, saying that, you know, his loyalty wasn't enough. He just didn't quite watch, um what it takes to survive even in this dystopian world.
1: I think it's also funny that we're talking about the or the vocabulary that Orwell chose for the book living on and having influence in our world one part a big part of the book is how they're of the book and the and in, uh, in the movie is how they're shrinking down the vocabulary that exists mm-hmm. um so like there's this whole this whole concept of like they only wanted like three different ways to say good right um so they were going to there was no longer going to be like great and all that kind of stuff. They're going to boil down the vocabulary so much to the point where like people weren't like, wouldn't be able to have this. I think there's like a line wouldn't be able to have this discussion, the same discussion in like 2050. Right. Um, which is interesting because Orwell added all of, all of these things that you think of, like when someone says big brother, you automatically think of the book and like in the part of the book and in Newspeak is when they're just boiling down the language so much that everyone... Like one can't converse with each other. And it's like, you unif- it's so uniform that like everyone's opinions are the same, too, because they only have the same vocabulary to explain what's going on.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a method of control that they are exercising over the people by only giving them so many options about things to converse and ways to frame and sort of priming them in a way that sort of gives them a control to prevent uh, another idea that becomes part of the vernacular that Orwell came up with which is thought crime which is you know there there is no law theoretically in Oceania or or even practically they say that outright but there is a sort of from the it it was instituted top down but it has grown from the bottom up this preventative uh sort of crime stop mentality of getting to the point where something might be dangerous or going against what the party believes against big brother and halting that before even the thought of it can occur. Um, And and this was interesting because we actually just recorded an episode about Arrival um, with the Amy Adams' film, which is specifically about the the use of language and how it influences perceptions of the world and the sort of delicate balance between determinism and and relativism. And and there is this sort of fight uh, that becomes – overt by the time that Winston Smith is abducted by O'Brien uh, uh, and taken to the Ministry of Love's headquarters and is undergoing this like chapters-long torture which lasts an indeterminate amount of time uh, for a point where he he at one point asks O'Brien, uh, who has been basically we find out the book that he had ceded to uh, Winston, The Theory and Practice of Oligarchical Collectivism, which is supposedly written by Emmanuel Goldstein, this dissident and uh, subvert rebel uh, leader of the group, the brotherhood that's trying to fight against the uh, the party and such. You find out O'Brien has essentially parroted this identity and written it all himself and tried to create a flawed manifesto for collectivism that will ensnare people who are captivated by the ideas but is is actually he thinks kind of just a crock. Winston asks if it's true and he says as a description yes but the program it sets forth is nonsense. But there are similarities in this sort of constructivist view of reality that O'Brien talks about that are seated in Gold the, the supposed Goldstein writings. And I think that's the description that he he talks about. Like you're not going to be able to do much with this because the party is so powerful. But the way that meaning is controlled can allow them to influence what becomes reality and what constitutes something being in existence Uh, and they know that and it it becomes the tension between winston's desire for objectivity compared to the control that the party wants to influence
2: yeah everything from uh double think to crime stop newspeak generally and the existence and of the of, of Goldstein, the Goldstein Manifesto, and what O'Brien and the party do with it—they're all part of this elaborate system of control. And the Goldstein Manifesto is 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 a fascinating component of that, but it's also a fascinating piece of uh, of political sort of analysis, which makes the party's use of it even even more interesting. So so the content of the Goldstein manifesto is basically uh, a description of how the party exercises power and why it exercises power and what's the purpose of war and it's a very counterintuitive thing you know the uh, oceania is at war at east asia uh, is is at war with east asia or someone else and you think oh well they must be the enemy and the purpose of war must be to win it the Goldstein. Manifesto explains, no, the purpose is not to win the war. The purpose is to have the war so that the people on top can stay on top. Uh, And not only that, but wage war on the people in their own country who are beneath them. The the purpose of war, the Manifesto explains, is to keep the inner party on top and let them uh, wage war not so much on East Asia as on the people in their own country, the outer party and the proles and uh it's 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 a, it's a fascinating uh description of you know what could emerge uh a dynamic that could emerge uh through political systems and people's self-interest even what even uh, if in fact i, I think it uh, what one frustration i have is that that is it's possible that that could emerge it's very hard to believe that that could happen in an inten- in an intentional way like the goldstein manifesto describes still uh, it's this really insightful and damning critique of the party mm-hmm. and the party uh, creates it you know we do orwell's never really clear about whether goldstein actually exists but it kind of he kind of makes it uh, seem as though he Goldstein is just a creation of the party. Certainly, O'Brien says that he wrote the the manifesto, uh, and and that could have happened whether Goldstein was real or not. But uh, that that the party itself wrote such an insightful and damning indictment of uh, their own activities itself is fascinating. And then they. Uh, then they use it. They deploy it in a way that helps them to quash opposition. You know, they let this exist. This manifesto exists. They share it with people they think might be uh, 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 subversives, might might be hostile to to the party. Uh, they use that to identify them, uh, and then once they do, they torture them until uh, until they until those. Uh, Would be revolutionaries end up loving Big Brother? Um, it is uh, it, it it was it, it's fascinating on a number of levels, uh, it, a lot a lot of them having to do with how they exert uh, how the party exerts control. But it's also fascinating because Orwell manages to worm into this 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 narrative a really insightful and powerful uh, or a lot of really insightful and powerful observations about what drives
3: a totalitarian regime like that it's uh something that that struck me while while reading the book um is uh, you know well which time it was but goldstein seems some kind of uh like trotsky figure and of course you know orwell had a whole treatment of the russian revolution in animal farm uh but this is you know, a classic example, right, of someone who could have been an ideological um, leader of a movement be- becoming, you know, the eventual victim of its own successes, right? So Trotsky himself ends up with a nice pick in the head in Mexico, uh, killed by <laughs> killed by the, the Soviets. Uh, and there's this, you know, but nonetheless, you'll still have, you know, communists for for, for decades, of course, talking about how great Trotsky was and. Obviously, you know, Stalin was the one who really screwed it up and, you know, true communism has never been tried and the usual stuff. Uh, but it, it was, a, I think, I, I don't think it's an accident that, that Orwell uh, took uh, uh, approached Goldstein in that way. Uh, and, and I think, you know, Landra is right to point out um, earlier that I, I think, especially libertarians, if you're a classical liberal, you think about the rule of law and how important it is to have checking institutions and and all of that. But, you know, in the first few pages of the novel, uh, Smith says, "Well, nothing was illegal because there were no longer any laws. So, we're in the situation where the only thing that really matters is the will of the party, uh, and it's not, it's not bad laws or bad institutions. It's you know, at, at least from the beginning of the book, you know, Smith is discussing the lack of any laws at all. It's just power."
1: I think the way that, like Hannah was saying, that the manifest is used in such, like, an intricate way, too, is kind of, like, I think that's what, like, gives it the biggest impact. And throughout the manifesto, it has, like, a huge long section that Winston's reading about, um, like, the purpose of war. And then uh, Winston, like, puts in his thoughts every, like, every so often, like, every chapter or so that he reads. And he kept coming back to this idea that, like, the proles, like, represent... Like the only hope for revolution. And I guess that kind of struck me as interesting that he thought that way. I believe the, the proles were like 85% of the population. So obviously like they're the masses, but, um, I kind of wanted to dig into like, why were the proles the only like sense of hope left when they were like, I guess left to their own devices for the most part and were kind of like the bottom rung of society. Like, why were they the only hope? Simply because they were the largest group.
2: Yeah, I think that's it. You know, the way in there in a situation like that, there are no laws, there's no reason debate uh, that's going to guide uh, political developments. It's all just going to be exercises of pure power. And Winston was unsatisfied with the status quo and he thought, well, just based on numbers. The, the the proles are the only hope, but I think also uh, he sensed that the proles had more information than uh, than a- anyone else. You know, the, the inner party they're all benefiting from from this social structure. The outer party uh, they benefit somewhat. They're better off than the proles, uh, which is precisely the the problem. They don't have the information that the proles have about how. Uh, uh about how repressive the society is about how much deprivation there is uh they are having more of their needs met than the proles are and so they have less reason to revolt but the proles really understand just how um uh, inadequate the social and economic structures are and so they're most likely to revolt for that reason
0: and also it made me think why then Make the authorial choice that Orwell does to set the story and and tell it from an outer party member's point of view rather than from the proles because you could very easily see this choice. And, and I think there's obviously some intent there, and I kind of want to parse out what it would mean, that you could set this story from a prole's perspective, and it would have a much more like sort of hero rising through well, the ranks, like saving – yeah, it's sort of Campbellian at that point um, in the the sort of hero's journey esque tinge that it gives to the story. So, what do we make of the choice, and what does it mean to tell the story from an outer party member's perspective uh, as opposed to a prole?
3: Well, the, the the choice I think is obviously deliberate and um, and and a good one because uh, Orwell suggests in, in the novel that the proles really don't have much of a political. Consciousness at all, really, uh, or many political ideas, and the, the one of the I think the lessons of of nineteen eighty four, or certainly something I feel like uh, Orwell was trying to get across, is the danger of the sort of um, logical thinking of intellectuals. You know, the kinds of people who end up becoming bureaucrats or working in the state or working in the regime, um, and why that's that's so dangerous. You know, and uh, that that 's why I think the, the the novel picks as its protagonist someone who's in the system but not very high up um, and someone who's on the fringes you know someone who does actually go you know shopping for a diary in a um an illicit shop uh but you know in in the in the book he said he writes you know winston says uh but if but the proles, if only they could somehow become conscious of their own strengths would have no need to conspire they need to only rise up and shake themselves you know and there's um yeah, you know, the proles in Oceania aren't political animals much at all, which I guess is a testament to the success of the party. Um, you know, the 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 real scary thing about 1984 is about what you know this kind of authoritarian regime does to people who work in it um, themselves. And you know, you can look throughout history and look at you know people who work for the Stasi, for example, or people who work for uh, surveillance agencies um, around the world. I think for similar examples.
2: And when you think about it, he really had to be a member of at at least the outer party, could have even been a member of the inner party, I think. This becomes clear when we consider Winston's job. Winston worked in the Ministry of Truth. His job, as Matthew said, was to quote correct news reports from the past so that they aligned with the party's current needs. So here's a guy who is helping to implement the party's system of uh, of uh, informational control. You know, it's just the party's system of uh, propaganda to distort reality in ways that are supposed to pacify uh, the public, and uh, and he's wrestling with uh, his his conscience that he's doing this. He's wrestling with the uh, whole nature of what is true and what is not in the epistemological problems of how do we know what we know. And he uh, is really the perfect person to be the central character in this story about how a totalitarian society can use can uh, the, the control of information to control people.
3: And I think this is um, something people observe very often with their political enemies, but not very often with their allies, right? In the sense that, you know, something that I think you should always be remembered about 1984 is that everyone sees their political enemies in big brother and in the party, you know? So wherever you are on the political spectrum, you can point to behavior from your political opponents and be like, Oh, that's Orwellian or that's something that's, that's thought police stuff. And, the fact that people from across the political spectrum feel that way is a, um, I think, a real testament to Orwell's genius here. Uh, because you know, Orwell, at least in his um, private life after the publication of the book, did explicitly mention you know that it's not intended as a critique of uh, socialism per se or or fascism per se. Uh, you know, but before recording, Michael and I w- were chatting about the fact that that Orwell was one of the only. Um, or certainly among the very few public intellectuals at the time, who was really correct about uh, fascism and also really correct about uh, the Soviet Union. You know, he uh, Mm -hmm. went to fight in the Spanish Civil War, took a bullet in the neck from a fascist sniper. Uh, You know, this is a guy who wanted to fight fascists. Uh, But then he also witnessed, you know, Stalinistic, uh, the the Stalin-aligned groups purging other uh, Republicans in Barcelona. Um, so he was always skeptical of totalitarianism of all stripes. Uh, and yeah, that's um, that, I think, makes the book somewhat uncomfortable because you know, it's become very in vogue recently for uh, Republicans and um, conservative activists to cite 1984, especially in the context of big tech social media debates to describe, uh, you know, what Facebook did to Trump as Orwellian or something like that. Uh, I, I remember uh, Senator Lee, I think it was after the Facebook Oversight Board decided to uphold the ban on Trump, tweeted that it was double plus ungood, you know, using newspeak. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I think Orwell would laugh at the idea of... Um, American conservatives reading this book and thinking it was written with them in mind, (laughs) you know, as the good guy, it's, it's a real, but you know, that's part of what, why the book has endured for so long is everyone regardless of your political ideology can read it and feel a deep sense of unease and familiarity.
2: Familiarity because they see their opponents in it and never see themselves in it. uh, Right. Which, which is, which is, I think, uh, an equally important insight you know there's a, there are these wonderful experiments uh, where the where the uh, researchers who are conducting this study presented people with claims uh, about uh, uh, with claims that involved mathematical errors some of the claims were about gun control uh, and some of the claims were about say hand lotion one of them is very political, one of them is not, but they contain the same mathematical errors. And the people who noticed those mathematical errors when it came to gun control uh, did not notice them as often when it came to hand lotion. And what the researchers surmised, and I, I think this mm-hmm. is, uh, is, is valid, is that when something when you make a claim about gun control or another hot button political issue that challenges my priors, it challenges my view of the world, I'm I'm very good at detecting when you've made a mistake.
1: There. When you're wrong. Exactly.
2: But when you make a claim that is it doesn't challenge my priors, because who cares is about hand lotion or <laughs> Or even more so, if it is a claim that doesn't challenge my priors because it validates them, like maybe it's a claim about gun control that I agree with, I'm much less likely to find the error in uh, in those claims because I have no incentive to, because it doesn't present any threat to me or my worldview. And so that's what's fascinating to me about uh, the fact that everyone sees their political opponents in 1984 or sees a little bit of 1984 in their political opponents, uh, uh, they're all right. <laughs> oh, Matthew and I were talking about this earlier and I joke, except <laughs> except for libertarians, this doesn't, this doesn't apply to us.
1: <laughs> but they're all, they're it all never right does. This is,
2: this is a natural, this is a natural uh, human tendency to, uh, to look for threats and ignore things that are threats and it is it is it is why uh the free flow of information is so important because we're never by definition we're never going to see our own blind spots and 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 like it or not we all
3: have them yeah and often i mean it's not directly related to to 1984 but nonetheless to do with orwell and language and um I, the the essay that orwell wrote you know politics and the english language i think does a good job of um showing how sloppy people can be with um with language and in politics i think sometimes people seek out vocabulary to justify certain policies so an example might be you know we america doesn't wage war and drop bombs on innocent people it has kinetic military actions that sometimes yield collateral damage right and that <laughs> is and and if you don't like reality right? It's, it's sometimes comforting to have a vocabulary that makes you feel slightly better or to make your policy sound good. Um, and that that I think is something we always have to be on the lookout for, especially in policy and politics, that uh, people do this all the time, I'm constantly thinking of ways to dress up policies that their allies might use um, in order to make them sound better. Uh, but the, the precision of, of language is, is very, very important. And uh, something I, you know, Thing shouldn't be overlooked is that the, the novel comes with an appendix that it actually has a whole discussion on Newspeak that is worth, yeah. um, worth unpacking uh, because you, Orwell does a very good job of pointing out that you don't have to get rid of the word necessarily. You just sometimes have to get rid of the concept. Whereas, you know, even in Newspeak, the word free is a word as in a dog is free of lice. But the important thing of Newspeak is to get rid of the word free, meaning anything like politically free or mm-hmm. to have, you know, real freedom in, in that sense.
1: I think too, we were touching on a lot on this like idea of like familiarity, like whether it's reading while you're reading the book or watching the movie. And like what struck me kind of like Feeney was hinting at earlier, like with the big brother being used and like the larger tech and surveillance conversations that are going on in the policy world like now everyone has alexas in their homes or like the little google dots and their uh tvs and i was just kind of wondering like when this book was first written i'm sure there was a a larger fear than is now because we're more uh, familiar and used to these types of products in our home but this type of tech Proposed a larger you know threat people thought that you know the government was always watching um now we're just like acutely aware that the, <laughs> that we're always being watched but i think before it was more of like a legitimate panic probably when this uh when this book first came out um yeah. but it's just like i guess that made i made i guess like uh, the existence of all these products in our lives now kind of made the 1984 story a little bit more like surreal I guess because I could see, I was like, Oh, I can see like us having all these types of products where, you know, it's always, it's always on. It's always listening or like you can only, or, um, in their case, they could only turn, they talked about t- turning the telescreen mm-hmm. <laughs> off, um, for like only 20 minutes or then it would be suspicious. So I guess like that type of familiarity, I think, especially since surveillance has been such a larger discussion going on for the last decade or so, I think makes 1984 even more. Like harrowing or re- relevant at the very least?
2: I didn't read this book until I, I already had uh, an Amazon Echo in the kitchen and an Echo spot in the in the room where I was reading, where it has a camera on it. So I look at the book and then I look over at the camera and I look at the book and I look over at the camera. <laughs> and, and so that was interesting. But I, I think Natalie's point is is really important it's difficult to put yourself in the place of someone who is reading this book when it came out in 1949. Right. Uh, maybe easier for me than for the rest of you because I was born closer to that date. But uh, almost none of the you know, televisions were still new. And the idea that you could have two-way video communication uh, very far off. Uh, but the world, everyone's world was, was smaller as a result of the more primitive uh, uh, telecommunication technologies. And so to introduce into that world the idea that everything about you is suddenly going to be uh, exposed to uh, uh, to members of the party who are going to be watching you and, and critiquing you was, yeah, it was even scarier than, than it is today. We have, and yet, and so we have a lot of these technologies now in our homes uh, that that, in theory, could be used to watch us uh but but generally they 're not so I think and and so it seems uh, <laughs> keep telling it yourself seems that less, <laughs> it seems less scary to us now, but you have to recognize that the potential is there, and it does lend you know the that potential does lend itself to legitimate concerns that someone is listening even though uh we think Alexa is over there being dormant she 's actually taking notes on on. You know the political conversations we're having around the dinner table.
3: Yeah, I, I was struck um, rereading it that you know when when I first read the book, uh, obviously the, the the horror of the telescreen seemed to be that it was a a surveillance device, right? That it's, it's right. always watching, always on. But what what really hit home this time is that it's it's simultaneously a surveillance device and a broadcasting device. So it's broadcasting propaganda from the party. Uh, while also watching you. And again, maybe because of what I do for a living, my first thought was this is how many people on the American right view social media these days. <laughs> that it's a uh you know, these you know Facebook and Google, for example, uh, are not just mechanisms for surveillance, but they also have political bias and are trying to influence how you think. Uh, and I, you know, I, I wouldn't go that far, but uh I, I think many on the political left would look at something like the telescreen and and see an Amazon Alexa or something as similar. The idea being, uh, you know, if if these companies can learn more and more about you, then they can advertise more accurately to you. And how free are you really? Like, you know, when when Amazon or Google suggests, oh, you want this new speaker. How much do you really want it? Or how much is <laughs> that that they've just they've figured out a way to make you think you want it, right? And and that is, you know, uh this kind of um surveillance capitalism critique that has been become very in vogue recently. Uh but but it raises interesting questions of um how much control can you have when there are people insistently trying to tell you um things all the time. Uh and you know the the, the book 1984 begins with Winston Smith, Smith finding a small corner of his Apartment where the telescreen cannot see him, and he can start writing this diary.
0: Beyond examples of double think that we have talked about and if anything comes to you that you're like oh this is definitely an example of doublethink that we see concretely today whether it's with social media or it's you know with the way people vote or view politics or et cetera, you could you could think of many many ways to to sort of view these themes in in today's political landscape i'm also interested in modern day examples of things like crime stop um, and and this is something that Feeney had touched upon about uh, the the sort of value to the party of. Uh, imbeciles or morons um, to, to the cause and what that can do. H- how would something like what what they define crime stop as a sort of protective stupidity? Um, how is that used today you know whether it's uh, as, as an instrument that people try to influence others with or intrinsic in the way that people think um, to, to sort of shield themselves?
2: Well, I think the clearest examples probably come from. US foreign policy where uh there is this reflexive um well there's there's this belief that the united states is a city of shining city on a hill and we are uh an exceptional nation because we were founded in liberty and when we intervene around the world it is to spread freedom and democracy and if you point out, as Matthew did, that you know some of our kinetic military actions end up killing people, uh, then uh, and and you try to equate that with similar things that other countries have done, uh, uh, that our opponents have done, our enemies around the world, then uh, uh, people will uh, say, absolutely not. There's no equivalence uh, to be drawn whatsoever, uh, and 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 that it. it it inhibits them. That that idea, uh, that is that that is so important to so many Americans, prevents them from doing an even-handed evaluation of uh, our behavior on the uh, on the international stage versus uh, other countries' behaviors on the international stage. And I think that that prevents us from res- resolving conflicts; it prolongs them. Another example is uh, recently President Biden said that. Uh, He made some comments about how the United States does not intervene in uh, or tamper with elections in other countries. And that uh, earned him a pretty stern rebuke from a lot of foreign policy scholars. But uh, and and whether this, you know, there could be some crime stop and some double think in here because crime stop would be when people say, no, the United States does not do that. Just by definition, we are the United States. We're for democracy. Right. Uh, Double think would be. Uh, well, when we do it, we're promoting democracy. That's what we're doing. Uh, whereas when other nations do it, it's election tampering or that sort of thing.
3: Uh, a recent example comes to mind is uh, some of the recent rhetoric about uh, the COVID pandemic, uh, where it seems more recently people seem to hold two views at once in their mind. One is that this coronavirus was uh, manufactured in a Chinese lab, potentially as a bioweapon, but also that this virus is not a big deal at all. And what was all the fuss about? And we don't need lockdowns. Um, and <laughs> so I don't quite, and, and you'll say this, these two seemingly to me contradictory views that it's a, a really dangerous bioweapon or you know tool that should be investigated to the death. And oh, by the way, it's authoritarian that I should ever have had to wear a mask going to the grocery store. And you know, people are blowing this out of proportion and get a grip. Uh, that seems like one example. Another is discussions on on immigration where immigrants are simultaneously taking our jobs and our welfare at the same time, um, seems to be, you know, another one. Um, I think Crime Stop is not quite the same thing, but the the phrase or the the use of it in 1984 reminds me of how partisans across the political spectrum view um, journalism outlets that they know they, they can stop thinking immediately once they know the source of what they're being told which is if something's from CNN, it's like, okay, stop, you know, um, there's kind of a, a barrier that, that hits certain people or when, you know, on the flip side, when, uh, I don't know what the equivalent would be, but you know, if, if something, if Fox news reports something accurately, there'll be people who nonetheless, uh, take a rather dim view of it. So it's not quite crime stop in the sense of it being productive stupidity. Um, uh, but uh, there was, I, I would say, you know, during the Trump years, the, the ongoing use of the phrase fake news, it seemed to me, mm-hmm. was a desire among some people who were allied with the administration to get people to stop investigating. <laughs> like the <laughs> idea was once you label something as fake news, there's a huge number of, um, say, Trump allies who will stop their own investigation of whatever's being discussed. Right. As long as a figure in authority says, oh, that's fake news. Uh you can stop worrying about it. You can take comfort in the words of the leader right that um right. you'll you're right um so yeah, those are a few examples that come to mind or at least are nineteen eighty four adjacent shall we say uh
2: it, it comes up in uh my area's health policy uh it, it comes up uh crime stop does or crime stop adjacent uh behavior when you try to- uh question the idea of whether the government should be guaranteeing access to health insurance for everyone or access to health care for everyone of uh, via health insurance. Um, some people, for some of them, that's, that's a conversation ender, even if, uh, uh because it's just not an idea we can entertain. That's, 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 um, you know, it's it's uh, it's a thought crime. One of my favorite examples of this, and it comes up with the you know the Medicare program as well. Medicare people in health policy circles revere the Medicare program, even if it drives them crazy sometimes. <laughs> and and and, uh, and some of the some of the biggest critics of the U.S. Medicare program are its supporters who actually dig into the details of what the Medicare program does. Uh, my favorite example of this was uh, a little more than a decade ago. A couple of the top health economists in the country studied uh, how much Medicare protected seniors from wild variations in out of pocket health spending. So, uh, measured the insurance benefits of Medicare and also measured the health benefits of Medicare, tried to find some mortality benefits. And uh, what they found was there, there was no evidence that Medicare saved a single life in its first 10 years of operation. They could not find any evidence of that. Uh, they did find that it found uh, that, that Medicare protected seniors from uh, high out-of-pocket expenses. So there was some insurance benefit, but the insurance benefit could could justify at most 20% of the total social cost of the Medicare program. So you you still got or – I'm sorry, 40%. It was two-fifths. So you still got like 60% of this uh, – uh, uh, the cost of this energy, the They weren't able to justify. And and the point of all this is that they originally titled their study, their working paper, and you can still find this online, the original title was, What Did Medicare Do and Was It Worth It? By the time this article got accepted at the Journal of Public Economics, uh, they had changed the title from, What Did Medicare Do and Was It Worth It?, to, What Did Medicare Do, The Initial Impact of Medicare on Mortality and Out-of-Pocket Medical Spending? (laughs) <laughs> it, it's as if it, it wasn't even allowed to ask the question, was Medicare worth it? Uh, when, when really this is the best, that stu- should be a valid question that people should be able, to, it is a valid right. question, people should be able to ask that. Uh, but that was t- too much for the pages of one of the leading economics journals in this country
1: have a more of like a fun question to ask i guess um so matthew earlier had mentioned like how 1984 has the ministry of peace which wages war the ministry of plenty which actually like is the one who like is overseeing economic shortages uh the ministry of love um that's like the center of the inner party's low like activities and i was kind of curious which ones you guys thought like were the most like dangerous or like the most the the worst of the three because they're all they're all pretty bad or like kind of the ones maybe that have the largest impact if you can't think of which one would be the most dangerous
3: well i always i remember having these kind of um fight i've had fights like this with with libertarians because some uh some libertarians i won't name names still insist on this kind of Name them. Um, Name them. <laughs> Name and shame. Unless it's me. They they insist on this um, this distinction, right, between like you know social freedom and economic freedom, which is a distinction I don't think makes any sense. But my um, and and you know people will say, well, you know, what use is the um, what's the point of being wealthy, right, and prosperous if you don't have the freedom to. Uh, to write a news article or to protest your government or to have jury trials or whatever, um, and other people say, well what's the point of being able to found a newspaper if you don't have any money to do it right um, i I don't want to live in a society where any of these four ministries uh, have any power over me um, because <laughs> um, even if I have the even if I live in a peaceful country where uh, there's no censorship and uh, I'm allowed to say what I want, but there's still food rationing that's not great, right? I don't want to have to worry about that. On the other hand, you know, if I'm very, very wealthy and I never have to worry about being hungry, but um, nonetheless, I could, you know, have the thought police come after me and I'm not allowed to have private thoughts or to buy books or to work at a think tank or anything like that, that's a pretty miserable existence too. Um, I I view them all, you know, maybe four sides of the same instrument, really. Um, I I hate them all equally, um, fear them all equally. Uh, I mean, ultimately they all have the same authority behind them, you know, in 1984, it's, there are no laws, you know, it's just the will of this, the party. And it's going to be someone um, in a uniform with a, a gun or a, a bludgeon enforcing the rules of all four of them. So um, it's a bit of a cop-out answer, but yeah, none of the above, please. If I, can. I have a non-cop-out answer.
1: He's taking option E. All right.
3: I have a
2: non-cop-out <laughs> answer, but I, I reserve the right to change my answer. Um, but my My answer is that the ministry of truth is the most dangerous and it has to do with, there's this wonderful and by wonderful, I mean, horrifying uh, quote from uh, Solonjitin's, uh, the Gulag archipelago that says that if you really want to get people to do evil, you have to give them an ideology. You have to make them believe that what they're doing is right. And the, uh, the the ministry of truth and the propaganda it puts out touches on everything. I mean, first of all, it it did. I mean, it, it distorts uh, people's idea of reality. It hides reality from them. It gives them uh, a, an ideology to explain the world around them, to explain uh, the uh, uh, why the party is good, why they should uh, ally themselves with the party, do what the party wants. Uh, this we can see uh and uh, and all of these propaganda activities as uh, as an example of the party trying to instill in the people this ideology that will get them to do evil in the party's name uh, and we can see it in the way that the uh, winston's neighbor's child reports on his own father to the parties and his his uh, father ends up in room one hundred one as a result, and and so I think it's because the ministry of truth is able to shape the reality uh, that people uh, that, that that people don't see see it is even more powerful than uh, the um, uh, uh, ministry of peace, uh, even though it's supposedly able to wage war. We don't really know how much of a war there is all we know is that winston uh uh, sees these newsreels on the on the telescreen he sees some people paraded in front of him that the the party calls prisoners of war and uh and and he uh is you know doctoring articles to uh recast the war in in ways that that the party prefers but just as uh, Goldstein may be an invention of the party, uh, some or all of the war could be an invention of the party. If it controls all the information flows, how do we really know uh, how how much of what is going on there is true? So, yes, the fact that uh, the all of the all of the party's activities by uh, oh, and the the Ministry of Truth also. Uh, 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 controls what people think about the harms that the, um, um, what's the, the, the department of, of, of uh, the the words escaping me, the economics one, the the ministry of plenty. That's what it was. I wanted to say scarcity because I'm, (laughs) (laughs) but uh, you know, the ministry of truth is, is, uh, is hiding the harms that the ministry of plenty is imposing on the people by making a reduction in chocolate rations look like an increase in chocolate rations so that people will celebrate that. Yes. All of this stuff is backed up by uh, the threat of, uh, a, a physical violence from, from party members. If you commit a thought crime or, 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 or whatever else, but the ministry of truth. It, it, and so, so the state uses violence against people, uh, uh or all of the ministries use violence against people but the department of truth is really a force multiplier there because the more more people the ministry of truth gets to imbibe this ideology the more foot soldiers the party has among the general public to quash any dissent to make people retreat into their own minds uh and not do anything uh, that threatens the party's hold on power
3: i think that's a, a compelling argument in favor of the ministry of truth that it, it uh, in favor of it being an answer to uh, Natalie's question, um, I, I it reminds me though that I uh, of something I, I should have mentioned earlier, which is uh, you know, people should read the book and realize it's not as fantastical as um, a lot of people might think. I remember my uh, friend and colleague Trevor Burris mentioning a discussion <laughs> he had with. Um, uh, a North Korean dissident, or at least an interview that he'd heard. I forget the exact context. But anyway, there was this North Korean dissident who who explained that she grew up actually thinking um, that Kim Jong-il could actually read her mind, like could actually hear her thoughts. And that was not, um, that was purely the product of something like the Ministry of Truth, right? Which is, if you... And we don't know like exactly what's going on in, in North Korea in these kind of contexts, how much of it is just so much fear makes you think that way as a defense mechanism, right? Or if it's something they're really being told. Uh, and certainly, you know, the reports out of North Korea do suggest that um, the leadership sometimes do take on um, what appear to be, you know, supernatural abilities, um, viewed almost like uh, uh, deities uh, themselves and It's probably the closest we've ever come to a real... Um, a real Oceania or a real 1984 society is North Korea. Um, but others come, you, you can see features of it in um, in totalitarian states all across the world. Um, but importantly, as we've discussed, there are also features of it you can see in peaceful uh, liberal democracies as well.
2: If we can find and put it in the uh, notes for the podcast, yes. there is a wonderful and by wonderful, I mean horrifying video that Nicholas Kristof of the New York Times put together from his uh, trip to North Korea. And the most harrowing part of this, there's, you know, he's interviewing people, and and they didn't even notice until they were reviewing the 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 footage later that there was a man who kept walking behind the subject of his interview, apparently whispering things to this person. He was so good at it, they didn't notice until they were back in the States and reviewing the footage. But but the most harrowing part of this was when uh, they were interviewing some children, and I can't remember if the parents were there or the children were there by themselves, but they were asking the children just some you know basic questions, these 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 foreign reporters from uh, these Western reporters came into North Korea and were asking these children uh, just the basic questions. And the children had these absolutely horrified looks on their faces. And I've seen children nervous in, uh, in social situations or with uh, adults they don't know. And this was different. It was as though, and you know, maybe this is my projection. You, you watch this and you tell me, if you have the same interpretation. But it was as though the children were fearing for their own lives or the lives of their parents if they said anything they weren't supposed to say. What I imagined is that these are children who had received lectures from their parents that you never, uh, that there are certain things you do not do. And when I watched the film 1984 in preparation for for this discussion, I, I I kept thinking of that Nicholas Kristof video. I was thinking of those children and wishing that the I saw more of that level of terror on the faces of uh, of Winston and 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 Julia or or other characters uh, because uh, that as I say it was really harrowing and and worth watching if you uh, uh, because as Matthew says probably North Korea is the closest thing that we have in the world right now, at least, to 1984.
3: Another uh, society worth, worth keeping in mind in these discussions is uh, East Germany, um, which had a pretty extensive uh, police state. And, you know, while doing this discussion, you just pull up, say, you know, uh, the the Wikipedia page, because I was trying to find the the exact estimate. But, you know, the estimate was that between the Stasi, you know, the secret police and mm-hmm. their um, their collaborators, so the Stasi and their collaborators apparently made up something like, you know, one in 63 people or 2% of the whole population of East Germany. But then once you add other informers and people who are friendly, you're closer, apparently, to something like one in seven people in the country. Uh And, and I think it's just all of us thinking, you know, how would we behave if every time we went to work or went to a, a, a happy hour or to a neighborhood barbecue and you looked around and thought, you know, one in seven of these people wouldn't be opposed to writing a letter to the government about that joke I made about the president or uh, <laughs> that comment I made about the mayor. Um, it's to, to imagine that you can behave in a normal way or to have a functioning uh, democracy in that, that situation is laughable. Uh, and so, yeah, we have, um, unfortunately and tragically, some uh, real-life examples of the sort of thing Orwell was talking about. Something that you can do uh, today... Uh, though is is look at examples of how um there are still stark divides within Germany that go that are almost strictly broken down by the old border between east and west germany um there was a few years ago I think it was the Washington Post published polling um of questions about things as mundane as political views and attitudes towards recycling and trust of neighbors and these sort of things. And even only a few years ago, you can look at the map of that polling and there's still a divide in East Germany and West Germany. Um, you know, something that uh, our conservative critics, I think, um, may be onto something is to to remind us that, you know, cultures are pretty, um, pretty fragile uh, and that uh, just because you replace a totalitarian regime doesn't mean you're going to have within a generation Right. Uh, uh, a liberal democracy prop up. Uh, it, it takes a long time for these kind of behaviors to uh, to 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 be ironed out. And, you know, if you know, I hope the day is soon. But when the North Korean regime collapses, I think it will be a you know it will be very tragic, uh, but interesting nonetheless to see how long it takes for a society that's been living under that sort of regime for generations to uh, to, quote, you know, catch up to to. See what it's to see what it's really like um, outside of uh, that little bubble, and there are other data points here. I mean, I want to I want to see what that looks like in North Korea.
2: We have seen how it occurred in places like Russia and the other Soviet bloc countries. Uh, Romania is a particularly brutal regime uh, under uh, the Ceausescus, but now you know. If you look, they uh, have uh, some measure of press freedom. I mean, if you look that up, that's that. That's that's one indicator that is that is hopeful. But I also want to see oh, and we, another data point we have is, you know, uh, Iraq and Afghanistan. We've seen in those places by a U.S. intervention, the toppling of some pretty awful uh, and repressive regimes. Uh, they tend not to just enact constitutions like the one we have in the United States and spring, you know, Flourishing liberal democracies tend not to spring forth. I also want to see, uh, and that could be as a result of external intervention, but we can tell similar stories about about Saudi Arabia, or we can we can say about North Korea what we uh, what we say about North Korea. We can say about Saudi Arabia. I would like to see what it looks like when that regime gets toppled. I would like to see what it looks like when a number of African regimes get toppled. Uh, but these things have been happening for millennia. You know, the, this 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 dynamic. And it's actually a very rare thing that you end up with dramatically more freedom uh, uh, after, after a revolution. Um, uh, there are those who think, and I think one of those people is on this call, that you know, the, on, this, on this podcast, that uh, the best recipe for uh, freedom is, uh, is first to have a monarchy. And then to sort oh of slowly, God. sort of slowly, crawl your way out of it. <laughs> and it's not, it's not a, it's it, 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 to the point where you have like a constitutional monarchy, and it's not a, a, a ridiculous position or, or uh, a theory when you compare it to what has happened uh, in uh, other parts of the world. If you look at Western Europe, you had a lot of monarchies where over time. People began to assert more and more rights against this uh, central government, and uh, individual freedom is more is is broader and more firmly established in those countries because of this sort of slow process of 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 people claiming their their rights against that central authority, and and there's even some of that in the United States. I mean, you can see the American Revolution that way, and then you can see uh, 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 the, the civil rights movement that way. Um, uh, yeah, it, uh, it, it, it is a, a really interesting question. Uh, what happens once, uh, a totalitarian system comes down and the answer is not always the one we would like it to be.
1: Um, Feeney, do you have your rebuttal to... <laughs>
3: Do a monarchy statement? No, not at all. no. Uh, uh, God save the queen. Long may she reign. Um, you <laughs> know, I, no, I don't have. Well, look, I I do think Michael is right to highlight um, American foreign policy and its, shall we say, uh, disappointing results from the point of view of liberalism. Um, I think we have to be careful to assume that there's, um, you know, an, an easy answer to uh questions about what to do with people who are unfortunate enough to live in these societies uh, that uh that exist today uh you know in in 1984 the the suggestion really is there's nowhere to run right there is no uh there is no refuge um it's a rather bleak outlook uh you know libertarian me takes the view that um if if anyone who lives in these societies is fortunate enough to be able to escape or to get out that our immigration policy should uh, welcome them with open arms. Uh, unfortunately, that is not the case. Uh, I wish it was. And we have you know, people like Cato working on making our, uh, America's immigration policy more like that. Um, but it's certainly, it's certainly true to say, I would say, uh, whether you're a Republican democracy or a constitutional monarchy, um, both of them seem compatible with um, small L liberalism, um, at least at the moment.
0: Thanks for listening. As always, the best way to get more Pop and Lock content is to follow us on Twitter. You can find us at the handle at Pop and Lock Pod. That's pop, the letter N, lock with an E like the philosopher, pod. Make sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen as well. We look forward to unraveling your favorite show or movie next time. Pop and Lock is produced by me, Landry Ayers, and is co-hosted by Natalie Dowzicki. We're a project of libertarianism.org. To learn more, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.